Eir Tanuyap, Kuiget Yuans Kuiensna. Hi, everybody. My name is Kuiget Yuans. I'm a member of the Squamish Nation and the Yagalanis Clan of the Haida Nation. You're listening to Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. We live, work, play, and broadcast from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. You are listening to CFRO Community Radio Station. The upcoming show, Conscious Living Radio, is a program that explores frontiers of consciousness, spirituality, personal growth, emerging paradigms in psychology, health, science, and innovative philosophies that reflect commitment to the advancement of individual, social, and global transformation.
This is Conscious Living Radio 100.5 FM in Vancouver, Co-op Radio. I'm Tasha Sims. And I'm Mark Grun. And the station's still on lockdown, so we're, we're recording here on Facebook Live, and then it will air at our usual time spot at 100.5 FM, um, 6 to 7 on Wednesdays. So VIF, Vancouver International Film Festival, is um, opening up soon, September 24th to October 7th. And this year, it's a little bit different. I mean, with all the COVID concerns, they're going to be screening a lot online, which some people will love, right? Because you get to watch films from bed. (laughs) It doesn't get much better. Um, They're showcasing 100 feature films, including international selections from around the world, also lots of Canadian filmmakers, and some brilliant documentaries, um, all of which you can, when you get your, your pass, can sit back and, and, like I say, make your popcorn, hang out in your jammies and, and watch at home. Um, they also have created, VIF has created a mentorship program. Did you want to say something, Mark? Yeah, I was just going to say, and you also don't get to miss anything if you have to use the restroom. <laughs> That's right. You can pause. It's one, the, it's one of the worst parts of going to a movie all of a sudden. <laughs> Um, So this mentorship program, which is what we're going to be talking about today, uh, Catalyst, it's called. And what it does is take 15 emerging filmmakers and supply them with tools and experiences that they need to bring their projects to the next level. The goal is to elevate Vancouver's independent film community to a world stage. And the applicants are um, from areas that may be under Uh, represented or misrepresented in film, including women, individuals from lower incomes, those who are racialized, uh, 2SLGBTQ, uh, differently abled individuals, the whole spectrum of people who have perhaps some more barriers and obstacles. And we're hoping to talk about that today and what is being done to encourage all filmmakers to have a voice. Our guests on the show are Vancouver International film uh, Catalyst programmer Rylan Friday and a Catalyst member, filmmaker Carter Kirilenko. So let me tell you about them before we chat. Rylan is a multimedia storyteller, curator, writer, and producer from Cote First Nation. He'll, um, we're going to find out and talk about his goal, which is bringing LGBTQ2 and First Nation stories to the big screen, and also talk about the importance of encouraging filmmakers, especially younger generations, to express themselves creatively in film. His own short film, the Bright, This Bright Flash, recently screened at FTQFF, and the liftoff sessions in L.A. and Vancouver International Film Festival. He also produced the feature film Portraits from a Fire and helped implement its peer-to-peer mentorship program for Indigenous youth. Also joining us, Catalyst member uh, Carter Kirilenko. He's an emerging director who focuses on story-driven documentary films that explore environmental issues. He attended University of Waterloo for Environment and Business, and his first two short documentary films, In Your Palm, 
and Loser, The Last Place on Earth, Draw Connections Between Indonesia's Annual Haze Crisis and the Expansion of Palm Oil Plantations. So we're going to have links to both those films on www.consciouslivingradio.org. So you get to view those also in your jammies, I guess. Um, We're hoping today to talk about both the Catalyst program and then shift the focus to um, some environmental concerns, palm oil in particular. Welcome to the show, you two. Thank Thank you so much. So, Rylan, let's start with Catalyst. How does it work? What is its goal of this mentorship? Uh, the primary the primary goal of the Catalyst Mentorship Program is to at least give like a jumping or jumping off a point for fifteen emerging filmmakers. And uh, my goal as uh, the VIF Catalyst Programmer is to help each and every one of these fifteen members from like different marginalized communities and with different backgrounds help prosper and bloom in their career. And I really wish like I knew something about this type of program when I started in film like five years ago. And me being someone who is very intersectional, both openly gay and someone who is indigenous, like I've had my fair share of homophobia, stigma, and as well as racism in the arts and like film community. And it's nice to be someone who is part of like a big film institution in Vancouver and help decolonize the process as well because like I feel like I'm doing my part and it was funny enough like me and Carter had a phone call conversation like yesterday just to go over like talking points and he was really unsure about how to negate this conversation and I just told him like well it's my job to make sure that I'm giving you a platform and you're offered a platform and take advantage of it. Like this is your moment to shine. And it's not more about me or the program, but it's more so how this program can help you launch your career. And as well as like figure out like what the next steps are beyond Callus once we end on like the fourth. And Mm -hmm. it's nice to offer that type of position and somewhat making small changes in someone's like career as well. And this year it's going to be a little bit tricky because of COVID-19 and how VIF and all the other festivals are more so following an online platform. So we start our first initial sessions tomorrow and it's going to be all online. And what I'm trying to do is build a sense of like an online community. Normally these in past iterations is that all these sessions and like group hangouts would be in person And I know that with online festivals and like there's the absence of like networking and like that human connection. So what I'm planning to do is just like put in like daily check-ins with like esteemed guests of like the festival and as well as as like previous cohort, but as well as making sure that we're covering down like all the basis of like what filmmaking is really all about, like from festival programming to ensure that each and every one of uh, the cohort members are clear and like what proper festival etiquette is and how to make sure that your film, your short film or feature is like a successful product of a film festival and as well as like film distribution. So I want to get there. I've got specific questions about the how that's okay. That's okay. Before we get to that, because as you're saying, as you're alluding to, there's a creative process. Yeah. And there's a community that's important and there's having a platform that's important. And then we're going to talk distribution and business because obviously if no one sees the film, 
it's not going to be out there. But let's let's kind of just if we could slow down a little bit, because what I'm curious about is how you decide who to pick. What how do you do that? And who's deciding? And this is partly too for people out there listening going, yeah, do I want to have a voice? I want to make a film. How do I do this? And is this program something I could apply to? So can you just sort of go over the basics of, of who it's for and how you pick and decide? For 15 sure. filmmakers, right? Yeah. So 15 spots are up up for like uh, for grabs to be a part of this Talis mentorship. And pretty much there is a specific set of like criteria and requirements. So anyone who identifies within a marginalized community, whether it's like the spectrums of gender identity and ability and sexuality, and anyone who is black, indigenous, person of color, or mainly pertaining to like Asians or Southeast Asians as well. Uh, That just opens up the door to like a wide array of like individuals like applying. Uh, We were fortunate enough to have 132 applicants uh, for this year, which is a record number. And they were highly sought after. And one of the major stipulations that could either make or break uh, an individual's application is making sure that you have um, one uh, one film that has been self-released that's either been all written, produced, and directed. And once I was able to go through and help negate through like the applications and figure who would be shortlisted, then that was handed off to a, a selection committee of comprising of two to three individuals, one being one of the programmers from VIF, but as well as like a mixed batch of like individuals from the 2018 and 2019 cohort and they would review all 51 of the shortlisted individuals and as well as narrow it down to roughly around like 21 shortlisted individuals who would be interviewed Mm -hmm. and once we have like the first initial like interviews and that's how we'll take notes and then we'll go through like our third and final round of like adjudication and error grievances of like why this person like might fit in and like giving another reason why this person like is either overqualified or underage or just a little bit over and there's so much variables and over age over what age over over 35 which is the limit and as well as like 18 being the minimum okay And so, Carter, let me ask you, I want to bring you into the conversation. Mm. What kind of barriers or hierarchies do you feel need to be broken down to generate equality and growth for emerging filmmakers? Um, That's that's a great question. I think, and just a little bit of of context in terms of my background, um, I don't actually have any formal education in filmmaking. Um, so my, my education stems from more studying environmental science and business. Um, and I was actually sort of in the, the corporate uh, world for, for a while. Um, and, you know, I think that we're slowly realizing that you don't necessarily have to have this formal education to actually be a filmmaker and to release a film and, and to share a story. Um, and I think that, um, for, for me, it was just sort of a, um, you know, something that I had to go and face that on my own. And as I did that, I realized that a lot of barriers um, for independent filmmakers today, especially in Canada, is, is simply access to, to funding, access to resources, trying to find connections on 
who to speak to, who to gain mentorship from in actually creating a story. Because um, you know, I'll be honest with you, creating a film was the, the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life. Right. Um, and a lot of the times they can span, these projects can span over multiple years, especially if you're, if you're creating a feature. Um, so, you know, for me, my experience personally was that when I went into this and I kind of took this leap to say, Hey, I want to go into the world of film. Um, I was just like overwhelmed with the, just where do you start? Like what, what funding, what distribution and access do you have and, and who do you go to? So for me, VIF mentorship catalyst program, um, was just kind of shouting my name saying that, look, you don't, there's opportunities in which you can create a film without this formal education. And it kind of takes us to what Rylan, um, had opened up where, yes, maybe we can comment on it now since it's here, learning about distribution, getting connected, all that kind of stuff. You can't, you need it. Mm. And there's not, I don't know where you would go to learn that actually. (laughs) You say, I have no formal training, but where do you go to learn that? So either of you, do you want to say more about this whole idea of, especially in Canada, because it's different here, you know, distribution, um, you know, I write feature film screenplays, but it's always, it's never geared towards Canadians. It's geared to some sort of American, you get an American deal and maybe you've got a shot, but I wonder if that in itself could change or in the field of documentaries, does it feel different? Because I'm noticing some pretty incredible Canadian documentaries that are out there. What are your thoughts, either of you, on the whole idea of um, how, the business aspect and the distribution besides the creativity needed? Well, it's interesting that you say that is that me being a producer of a feature film and stepping into new territory as well in terms of like, the funding side and the logistics and like the distribution and I'm just stripping away the layers of like hierarchy and just letting everyone know on who is in the cohort and like anyone who comes into the panels is like I'm still learning as a, an emerging filmmaker and I still see myself as like a mentee and it's my job to bring everyone together and it's a, it's a little bit daunting at first but it's nice to for myself and to organize all these panel discussions and sessions just to create like some type of accessibility because in terms of like distributors funders and anyone within the film world within these major organizations in metro vancouver there is that sense like intimidation and that people are really unapproachable so i'm glad that this program is able to leave those barriers and get like a good sense of like what proper distribution is like in terms of like making sure that you're able to sell your film, pitch it, and as well as ensuring that your films are able to get out there in the world within like many digital platforms. With that being said, I know that one of uh, a few of the cohorts of previous years were able to successfully get their films distributed by the any by the representatives that came from these distribution companies and it's nice to know that that is a high possibility with this cohort as well that the sky is the limit just get yourself out there and you just need to make the leap 
do you think you start with the creative impulse and then go about funding and stuff like that? Or if you were making, let's say, a documentary, would you possibly start with setting things up um, from a funding aspect and then follow your creative impulse? Or do you have an opinion on that? I would say start with the creative process first, like jot it down, make sure that it's a nice fine-tuned structure. And then once the funding process begins and when you start looking to grant applications and seeing what creative BC, BCR's council and like telefilm have to offer, then you'll be, you'll be able to properly prepare like what your grant proposal is and as well as like properly formalize a pitch. And I'm not too sure like, I would love to get, like, Carter's perception on that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I, I'm definitely, from from my experience, I had the idea first and the passion and the sort of the creative idea of what I wanted to to achieve. Um, and that was set the groundwork. That's at the foundation for me to actually um, go approach different district, different funding networks or different funding sources Um but I don't think that would have worked. I don't think I would have actually been able to get funding for my film if I wasn't, had didn't have a burning passion for the topic. If I didn't have the, this this creative drive for it. So I definitely agree that's the foundation um, that needs to be set for any any young and emerging filmmaker. And then um, the next step is simply understanding what what are the the multitude of different. Um, funding sources that are available for, for young filmmakers. And I think that um, a lot of us seem to go to the conventional route and go try to find film grants in Canada or, mm-hmm. um, you know, government sponsored grants, but there's, there's tons of, of resources available and, and it just c- kind of takes um, that nudge for you to, to really um, um, access those. For example, we, we had our film partially funded through Kickstarter crowdfunding is a fantastic way to, to generate um, uh, funding for your film, um, research grants, different film grants, um, your family and your friends, so many different ways that you can do it. But I think it really starts with that creative drive and that passion. So uh, I have a question just in regards to the funding, because I know nothing about filmmaking and, you know, we see, you know, technology nowadays, it's easier to get things done in terms of, you know, podcasts and even radio shows today in today's world. What kind of funds does someone need to start up a project to get it going? Because I'm sure there's going to be, there's a lot of hidden expenses that you probably didn't expect to come up in terms of what you were doing. Yeah, there were most of the filmmakers who start with like a conceptualized idea. Um, most uh, would definitely either pay out of their own pocket or most more so like look into development and research types of grants mostly for like feature films or documentary or say like any type of specialty type program uh just to make sure that it's covering like covering like the wages of like those who you hire or more so the living expenses for yourself in the process as well because the development stage of like any project it could be like heavily involved especially nearing up to like near grant applications like since you're in a time crunch and as well as like just anticipating all the incidentals and like any hurdles that that phase might come at you as well and then pretty much at filmmaking filmmaking my perception is that of it is mostly paperwork like <laughs> may, may people might think that uh, filmmaking is all the glitz 
glam camera lights and actors and post like making sure it's out there but everything is paperwork everything is funding grants everything is applications and it it kind of gets a little bit daunting and very tiring and time consuming as the progress goes mm-hmm. and just adding to that i think that um it, it's also, I feel like the, your, you know, your question about um, where does this money go to? Like, how do you know what is needed to be funded? And I think that's a lot of the times up to the creative direction of the producer, the director that's actually creating the film. In, in our context, we channeled a lot of our funding towards um, travel since we were an international production film. And, um, you know, we, we put a lot of our uh, uh, funding into post-production and sound design. Whereas other films might put a lot of that funding, um, you know, simply into to the music score or whatnot. So there's a plethora of different, you know, elements that eat up costs within a film. But I think it's more so um, analyzing what is your story, what is that creative direction that you want to take, and where can you channel those funds that will actually tell your story the best and get it out there. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the Canadian film scene in general, what what is good? and changing and what needs attention because i know you you especially rylan want um to focus on under represented stories first nations stories lbgtq stories what why is that so important and is that happening more and more uh yes i was just thinking as like introspectively and like why it's my mandate is like looking at like what the representation in the 90s and early 2000s pertaining to indigenous and queer narratives and like overarching characters and like just any type of stories and one of the biggest takeaways was that they're all filled with some type of trauma and just misleading stereotypes and just a very harmful connotation of like what indigenous people are and I feel like one of like the most harmful representations out there for me was seeing like Indian in the cupboard. It might be like a child, a kid's movie from like 1994, but walking away from that is like a young person who is six years old and then realizing it, coming back to it, watching it in like my early twenties. It just gave me like the connotation that no matter where indigenous people are in the fabric of Canadian society or like any society within Turtle Island that Indigenous people are meant to be put in their place and that also applies to like the film industry as well and it's nice to see that as we enter this age of like reconciliation and what I deem as the age like the Indigenous renaissance right now is that most Indigenous content creators are feeling more empowered and safe and compelled to like showcase their art to the public without being stigmatized or being tokenized or racialized Mm -hmm. and I feel like that is like powerful in itself to see like the likes of Jesse Anthony, Tracy Deer, like Elmai Tailfeathers and as well as like Loretta Todd like all these amazing filmmakers like come come out of the woodwork and make like acclaimed art like that's fantastic to see that proper representation yeah. in 2020 yeah. and like from the past couple of years. 
it crosses over to music too. Like we're not listening to it tonight because we're recording on uh, today on Facebook, but on the show we have, um, um, I don't think I've got snotty, you know, res kids, but I've got um, red tribe and uh, just some incredible hip hop, indigenous hip hop, which is storytelling. And again, in a context that, that, um, as hip hop tends to do, wakes people up, and I think film and music have that in common, and and literature. It's telling your story, but in a way that is meaningful to you, as opposed to fitting into the, uh, you know, as you say, the paradigm or the box that was created, where it's only about the trauma or whatever it is that the box is. Um, that's the sense I'm getting when I listen to you. It, would would that be accurate? That breaking that ceiling would be helpful exactly and exactly and I feel that as someone who is like someone who is intersectional like myself like I feel like I'm breaking so many barriers and so many stereotypes and such a colonial industry as well Mm -hmm. and it's nice to make sudden like subtle changes and it's nice to know like I'm doing my part to help like anyone grow within like a major platform like Biff. And I'm very thankful and honored for that. Yeah. And it's nice to meet with Carter and get to know him in the past couple of weeks and making sure like I'm empowering him as well. Like yeah. it's not for me, it's more so for like anyone who I'm part of like this 15 member cohort. It's, it's amazing to me, like all walks of life along the way. So Carter, maybe we can shift our focus a little bit um, to your films, because I really want to talk about the environment and what you're passionate about, the palm oil industry specifically. What was it? Was there something that drew you to that? Something that just was like, this is it. This is what I have to to make a film on. What was it? Um, Yeah, so there wasn't really a sort of a golden nugget, but there was was more so a a combination of different indicators for me that really drew me to um, the story of, of palm oil. And it was, I'll be honest with you, it, the story is one that developed over a year and a half. The idea that I came forward with at the beginning um, was entirely different from the idea or the actual final product of what I um, have now screening in festivals, completely different. And that just showcases um over a year and a half, the complexity of the industry and how long it actually takes to understand the root problems of the palm oil industry and um, what those those problems are are are, are causing. Um, but in in terms of a, a high level, um, you know, I was living in Singapore at the time uh, a couple of years ago, and um, there was a essentially a haze crisis that took place in that region. Um, and a lot of the, for those that don't know what, what, about the haze crisis, essentially um, it was an air, air pollution crisis where air quality levels reached 2000 um, AQI, which is about seven to eight times higher than what is deemed hazardous for human health by the World Health Organization. Um, and this was a lot actually stemmed from the burning of peatlands in Indonesia um, for the production of palm oil and for the expansion of palm oil. Um, and, you know, I felt very close to the issue at that time. And, and I figured that um, this was something that the media hadn't necessarily covered on an international scale at all, even though it was affecting many, many people in the region across different countries around Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia. 
Um, so for me, that was a sort of a strong indicator that I wanted to sort of dig to really understand the problem of this, this industry, but most importantly, actually understand what people can do about it. Um, which, which is a lot of what our, our, the purpose behind our film is. So can you give us a Coles notes? I know it's a big mm. field, but a Coles notes on palm oil, how this large scale deforestation is impacting people and the planet. Can we start there? Definitely. So palm oil, it's the most consumed vegetable oil on the planet. It's found in 50% of packaged goods in our supermarkets. Um, and most of the palm oil in the world, um, 70 to actually, I believe up towards 85% is grown in Indonesia and Malaysia on a commercial scale. And as distributed in um, all the products that we see that we consume today. So everything from cookies to soap, shampoo, chocolate bars, um, palm oil is, is almost in everything. Um, and and t- just tell our listeners what they'd be looking for, because it might not say palm oil, right? Yeah. And so it, it's, it's essentially, it's a vegetable oil. Um, a lot of palm oil um, products in Canada are, do tend to be labeled um, as palm oil in some of the, in other countries, it might not be the case. Um, but I think just to finish up here is uh, another point. It's um, palm oil is not really the, the enemy. It's, there's nothing intrinsically bad about palm oil. It employs millions of people in Indonesia. It is um, a stimulus for the local economy economy there. Um, The problem is more so of the unsustainable production of palm oil um, and how that is contributing towards deforestation, contributing towards climate change um, and biodiversity loss in very tropical regions. Um, So palm oil itself is not the problem, but it's more so the unsustainable production of palm oil, which is the issue that we're focusing on in our film. And so what would be a sustainable way to grow palm oil versus what's happening? Maybe you could describe how it's done now and the alternative. For sure. For sure. So I, I think, yeah, definitely it's important to understand, you know, some, some of the issues um, with the growing practices now. Um, the main, I'll speak to, to um, one specifically is that um, the, the main problem in a region such as Indonesia or Malaysia is that um, due to the fact that there is a very sort of low, low level of government intervention, um, you'll have large corporations or companies that will actually um, clear cut and burn forest in order to grow um, or expand their palm oil operations or their plantations. Um, and this is a specifically a problem in Indonesia because Indonesia is situated on a lot of peatland which is extremely carbon dense. So when you clear cut and burn peatland, and that's essentially releasing a mass amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is contributing to climate change. Um, so the problem with the industry and what we focus on now is the fact that you have these large corporations that are growing or expanding their operations um, without considering lo- the, the, um, you know, the rights of local communities, of local people within the area. Um, and they're expanding into very diverse tropical rainforest, um, which is obviously bad for the environment and, and um, a problem for the surrounding communities. So that's sort of the, the issue that we very much focus on. And, and, you know, there's other issues as well that stem into other areas of the environment and social labor rights issues. But we've specifically chosen to hone in on this problem within the film. 
And you, in your film, uh, Looser, you talk about uh, the animals that have been disturbed and um, in this whole, you know, as the ecosystems disturb, the animals are disturbed. Mm. disturbed. So because mm. of habitat loss, how's it impacted their numbers? Mm. Yeah, definitely. So um, Looser, the, the Looser ecosystem is, um, it's actually a national park situated in, uh, in the island of Sumatra, and it is one of the most biodiverse regions on the planet. It's also the last place on earth where um, Sumatran orangutan, tiger, rhino, and elephant all coexist together in the wild. Um, it's a very, very iconic place, and the, the problem is that you have um, corporations, um, palm oil, as well as pulp and paper and other industries that are expanding into these extremely diverse and life-rich ecosystems. Um, and that in turn um, has a large impact on the population of these megafauna, such as um, the orangutan, um, such as the Sumatran rhino. So, um, you know, for in terms of a number standpoint, we're looking at right now, there's about um, 80 Sumatran rhinos left in the wild, all situated in the looser wow. ecosystem, 7,000 Sumatran, um, Sumatran elephant, sorry, Sumatran orangutans in the looser ecosystem, um, and a few hundred Sumatran tigers. And that shift has been dramatic. And if you look at the, the landscape of Borneo um, and Indonesia as a whole, you've witnessed, we've seen about you know, 50% of Borneo's, Borneo's forests have been lost in the last um, 30 years due to the expansion of palm oil. So we're seeing very, very rapid change in natural mm-hmm. landscape. And that in, in turn has an impact on obviously animal populations, but more so also the, the um, you know, human life as well. And health, the health of human beings, right? You're seeing exactly. repercussions. And, and exactly. And, and that's one thing that um, we really tried to focus in on with our film because the and I, this is the point that I try to stress and emphasize a lot of my t- a lot of the time is the fact that um, communicating environmental issues is 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 very challenging when we just tell people that you know the coral reefs are bleaching or the trees are falling down because as humans we can't empathize with those things we can't understand yeah. those you know it, there's just a disconnect so I think there's a very important um, you know, link to make, to showcase through filmmaking that, and through human stories that the, these environmental issues we're seeing today are impacting human life and there are social issues. And we need to sort of develop empathy with our viewers through that, which can then kind of instill action. And, Mm -hmm. And that's really why we chose to kind of take this route of showcasing how people and surrounding communities are impacted by the palm oil industry, rather than showcasing how much how many trees have been cut down or how, or how many, you know, animals have been um, and, killed. Yeah and, yeah. and I think in the documentary, it, it was so impactful to see these people actually affected by all the smoke. And we can relate to what's been happening here locally in Vancouver with the fires where the smoke comes in. And, and that's just a fraction of what these people were living with every day where, you know, when the one fellow was talking about he, you know, after being out there for a couple of days, they couldn't see, you know, they couldn't, mm-hmm. it was so thick, you couldn't see, the one woman said she couldn't see someone a meter away from them. 
and and then you pull back and you see all the clear cutting and everything like for me it was it was a really impactful film because again i never thought you know palm oil sure i see it and right. stuff but i had no idea the impact and and the amount of you know palm oil in everything and so my one question really about that is what is it with palm oil that makes it so attractive and so usable in everything that we do Definitely. And, and the answer to that is just because it's, it's an extremely efficient commodity. Um, so, and, and this is a very important point because, um, you know, you, you have many other vegetable oils, right? You could use canola or soy or avocado, whatever. There's, there's tons of vegetable oils. The reason that palm oil is so dramatically consumed around the world is because it, it's the most efficient. And it's important to note that, you know, per hectare of palm oil compared to another vegetable oil, it's going to use less land, less water, less resources mm-hmm. compared to another vegetable oil. So that's, that's a big, you know, that's a, a big point to really wrap our head, heads around because that's telling us that, Hey, in order for us to actually do something and to, you know, reverse the environmental impacts of this industry, we can't just cut out palm oil because that's going to transfer that impact to another vegetable oil. That's going to be, consume more land, more water, more resources. Instead, we actually have to look at, okay, how can we work within this industry and make it more sustainable such that it does not um, impact the local communities and um, the surrounding environment? I mean, you're touching on economics, and I think it's unavoidable that people, um, I guess that's what I want to bring into the conversation. How do we facilitate a little bit more we thinking where corporations, where companies, yeah, I get they want to make money that I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, but Mm. how do we shift the attitude to also include the environment people? So there's more of a sense of um, like, are both things possible? What's your take on that and how? Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Um, I think a couple points on that. The first being that, um, you know, companies outside of the palm oil industry, like first of all, are, are it's it's now more economically feasible and 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 smart as a corporation to be sustainable and implement sustainable practices. Um, because you know, I think you know, ten years ago, it was it was a problem with um, you know the fact that if you're becoming more efficient or you're um, implementing these policies that it's going to impact your bottom line. But now consumers are, are demanding for sustainable products. This, consumers want to see products that are not impacting the environment and surrounding communities. And it, it's, it's shown from demand, right? So um, I think it's a lot of the sort of, um, you know, the, the change actually comes from the consumer end um, to show that, hey, we have the power to push these companies to actually um, change their policies if we actually showcase specific action points that we want to be made and we make that vocal on a public community level. Um, corporations listen because we consume their products, right? So, you know, I think that a lot of change is possible and it starts with, um, a lot of times it does start with the end consumer, but then it also takes, um, you know, government intervention, nonprofit intervention to actually make, make these um these requests actionable and actually make them happen. And the action is stop buying palm oil that's not sustainable and make it known that you want sustainable palm oil. 
Exactly. Right? And a, an emphasis for sure on, on the last point is that yeah. um, really vocalizing the fact that, hey, I am, I am now aware of the situation I know is, is going on. And um, doing, doing your research, we provide um, access to, to groups, um, on our website as well to, you know, corporations and, and organizations that are, um, have strong sustainable policies. And as a consumer, we can go and seek out those companies and, and purchase from them versus purchasing from, from another right. resource. So using, you know, using the power of social media, um, writing to brands, like there's just, there's tons of, of different points that you can take um, to actually make a difference as, as an end consumer. You're not as close as you, as you, we, we seem to think. I love well, that. And, and we vote with our dollar where we spend our dollar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. too how in the film you talk about, and that's the name, right? Loser, the last place on earth, finding a place and personalizing it, making it real to you. So I, I know a lot of people want to do something to support awareness around climate change and don't really know. They're overwhelmed. But what I'm hearing you do is kind of break it down into both a nugget of what you can do in, in this field and other areas where things are happening that are that have these kinds of massive consequences, but also mm-hmm. personalizing it. So your heart's involved, right? It becomes more than just mm-hmm. a, you know, a head thing. It's like you care because it's find your place, find the place that mm-hmm. things to mm-hmm. you that you go, no, this cannot happen, whether it's the animals or people or, um, right. Totally. I mean, I love yeah. that. I love the phrasing uh, of that. For sure. For sure. And I, I think that um, the more that we can shift the narrative around environmental education to showcase that this is, this is a personal issue and this is how it's affecting people on, um, on a very fundamental level that in turn will develop, then that um, develops interest, and then that in turn develops action, right? So at the fundamental standpoint, I think that, you know, as humans, we need to develop a sense of empathy for our natural world. Um, And the way that we can do that is through watching films, through watching these documentaries, or going and experiencing it yourself, because then you're internalizing, understanding the emotion that's actually involved in the people that have been impacted by these environmental or these environmental um, issues, right? Which, and then you which can, it's a starting point. It crosses over Ryland as well. I mean, it's the same thing here, developing empathy to the stories that you see. We're kind of back full circle that if people, you know, what, what as filmmakers, I think uh, the spark that you're offering is for people to care, take a look here and care. And that's a beginning because if people don't care, nothing changes. Like it's got to be somehow personalized. Do you agree too, Definitely. Rylan? Like when I you think agree. about the stories you want to tell? I do agree because so one of the amazing thing is that like what this program offers is helping these uh, emerging filmmakers, including myself, build up their own personal code of ethics and how they approach uh, different types of stories and as well as like navigating like the protocols and sensitivities towards certain topics and it's something that I've been firm on in terms of like building like this curriculum and just making sure like like there's no hierarchy everyone's even it's ethical but as well as like focusing on like VIF's mandate and as well as our supporting uh, partner Telestory Hive's mandate of like continuous growth and education within the film community as well is just ensuring that 
just aiming their focus and making sure that you're doing what is right for by yourself, but more so like for the greater good of like the overarching narratives that and stories you want to tell without right. doing anything sneaky or shady. Right. I mean, when I listen to you both in my language, um, working a lot in the personal growth field, it's a it's a bottom line attitudinal shift from me thinking to we thinking. Mm-hmm. whether it's with mm-hmm. nature or with people and, and our differences, but actually going, wait, there's a com- commonality here, whether it's the planet or nature, like we're, it's that um, connection to everything and standing for that acting as a messenger of that knowing, mm-hmm. as opposed to the kind of, like, there's been this incredible, I mean, it's always been there, but it's illuminated, I think since um, COVID it's like every rock has been overturned. So there's this incredible reactivity and polarity, one side versus another. But what mm-hmm. I'm hearing you both talk about is not that. It's actually where do we join and kind of allow something to be birthed, whether it's creatively as a filmmaker or looking at climate change, what can I do? But it's coming from a, a commonality, a we-ness, not a mm-hmm. me against them-ness. Am I mm-hmm. reading you both right? That's correct. <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I mean, I think in, in the context of, um, like, you know, the, the issue that we explore in our film, you know, a, a lot of these, these portions and, and all of them, actually, they have environmental um, sustainability teams that are towards the goals that have been requested by the, by the public and by nonprofit organizations. And, and it is a collaborative effort in terms of actually fighting climate change in terms of deforestation or whatever environmental issue that you want to look at. It is collaborative. And I think we have to start, like we have to stop pointing fingers and saying, Hey, you know, this person or this organization is doing it wrong. Um, it, it, it is honestly a collective effort. And um, I think that as commuters and as filmmakers, it's our job to first, make the issues aware and make them, you know, make people aware about them, but then also showcase, okay, now what can you do about it once you have mm-hmm. their attention? So I'm curious, there was, um, it just occurred to me in your film, The Rangers. I was fascinated with the Rangers story and you said, so those are the Rangers protecting the land in, in Sumatra. Um, mm-hmm. You said, you alluded to saying they, many of them started out taking life from the forest and now they're protecting it and it occurred to me that Mm. is there a theme like what woke them up and turned it around so they're now dedicating themselves to protect the forest was there anything you discovered i love this yeah um so a lot of the the park rangers uh, and just for for context for our listener uh, this is a park ranger team in indonesia that um has worked tirelessly to um revoke illegal palm oil plantations in that of operating in the rainforest and restore them back to their, their natural state. Um, and they protect the region from poking and other sorts of, um, you know, uh, anthropogenic threats. And the special thing about, about this, this park ranger team is the fact that a lot of them used to be um, former uh, criminals, poachers. Um, they, a lot of them were actually like involving life away from the forest, but, um, the remarkable thing about this team was that um, they recruit these people, they recruit these, these poachers and um, these 
these individuals who have been through a lot of trauma in their life. And they sort of showcase them, their, their ways of protecting the forest, their, their team, um, the value of the forest when it's intact versus when it's, you know, destroyed. Mm -hmm. And through continuously being involved within the team, they develop a, a sense of empathy for, for, for nature. And, and, um, they kind of, it, it's literally, these people went through a complete shift in it's looking amazing. at, you know, watching protect the environment. And this is, this is very common among many conservationists and, 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 you know, park rangers around the world. They've all, many of them have grown up in these conflict environments where all it takes is to actually really a different perspective, mm -hmm. a different experience to understand the value that, that nature and, and um, our environment can provide. So let's see if that can apply to corporations. I mean, in a way, instead of just making them the bad guy, you're talking about a kind of awakening, an education that makes people realize that there is value in, in standing up and protecting and having that kind of consciousness. And one of the great things is they know what to look for. Right when mm -hmm. they're looking for their poachers and stuff, because in being one or whatever <laughs> that right. is, they they know how they roll. Right. So, so I want to I want to make sure that you guys get information out there so our listeners can follow up with um, you both. So as I said, in your palm and uh, looser, the last place on earth are both available for viewing on www.consciouslivingradio.org. I'm hoping Rylan that maybe we could put application for catalyst up there i don't know if mark has that material but it would be cool if people listening could go okay i want to find out more about catalyst and how to apply and that was also part of attached to this interview can we make sure he gets that info yeah we'd be more than happy to pass along all the information and as well as um provide a clear update of like when potentially next year's applications might open so awesome. should be expecting around like june or july Perfect. And, and any other websites for our listeners to connect with you both? Um, I would highly recommend taking an extensive look at like what uh, VIF has to offer for this year in terms of like all the amazing programming and everything. So www.vif.org. It's got, I've got it all below in the com, com, comments for anybody watching on Facebook now or later. It's all down below. I've kind of added some links and some information about everything we've been talking about. Carter, do you have anything uh, specific to add there to get a hold of you or connect? With yeah, you? in terms of keeping up to date with our, our film, uh, we're quite on posting updates on our Instagram, which is um, at In Your Palm Doc, and then our website holds um, tons of resources and information for the viewers of our film who actually want to take action after they've they've watched it, um, and that website is In Your Palm Doc uh, dot com. So. Uh, those would be the the two best places to uh, to keep up to date. Mm -hmm. I love what you're both up to, and I'm just I'm wondering if you, if you have any final words, and it, they might be focused at different people, uh, might be emerging filmmakers, Rylan, or anything you want to say from your heart to the world. And then I'm going to give you Carter the same opportunity with whatever it is, whatever message it is that your heart wants our listeners to get. So whoever wants to start first. Island, go ahead. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, no matter where you are in your early stages of your creative career and no matter what uh, people tell you differently towards your goals, 
always aim for the moon, reach for the sky, and just lead with your heart, and just to speak honestly and truthfully in everything you do with good intentions, and especially making sure that you bring out your honest story and your honest narrative, and just uh, put yourself out there. It's worth the risks, and it's good to take healthy risks uh, in the end. Like That's how I came to be. And I'm with Carter on this one. Like I only have like a radio broadcasting diploma background, but with like in in a sense, I got my film school dropout and I didn't need a proper education. I just needed so many life experiences and Mm -hmm. you're just going to meet so many people along the way. And each of those people offer so many learning opportunities of like how to be an amazing filmmaker and as well as like what not to do ethically as well. Fantastic. Thanks. Mm. Carter? Yeah. And I think on my end, uh, my message would be um, words, uh, you know, young students or recent graduates that are, that are my age or younger. Um, you know, it, I think like if you, if you have like a passion or you're, you're interested in something or artistic form or, um, you know, whether it's film or music, I would very much highly encourage to reach out to as many people as you can. Um, I literally got started in filmmaking just through cold calling and emailing and going for coffee. People that were within the field that knew things that I didn't, um, that understood topics that that I wanted to learn. So honestly, uh, you know, if you're passionate about something, I would really make an effort to seek out those individuals or those groups that are five to 10 years ahead of you and, um, and chase that and reach out because there's nothing to lose. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you so much. And of Thank course, the Vancouver International Film Festival opening September 24th, running through to October 7th. Get online, viff.org, check out the films, Um, Get a pass. You can watch all of these incredible movies. And uh, we've been speaking with Ryland Friday, who is one of the mentors or the, the, actually you're more than a mentor. You're also a personal mentor, right? In the program, the Catalyst program. In a sense, um, I'm uh, more so the programmer. The programmer. I'll put everything together, but I'm still learning and growing in the process as well. And Carter Kirilenko, who, um, as we said, his two films, In Your Palm and The Last Place on Earth, are available for viewing right on our website, www.consciouslivingradio.org. 100.5 FM, Conscious Living Radio on Co-op, Wednesday night, 6 to 7. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tasha Sims. And I'm Mark Caron. Bye, you guys. The Halusa Nation, the human beings, the people, see the spiritual in the natural, through sense and feeling. Everything is related, all the things of earth and in the sky have spirit, everything is sacred. Confronted by the alien nation, The subjects and the citizens see the material religions through trauma and numb. Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM is political. Co-op Radio is poetry. Co-op Radio is tango. Co-op Radio is gay. Ecology. Comedy. Feminism. Philosophy. 
yoga, reggae, bicycles, trade unions, gospel, live, local, Asian, African. Vancouver Co-op Radio is community. Your community. Vancouver Co-op Radio. CFRO. 100.5 FM. All different. All the time.